feel like this is one of those episodes that should start off with some kind of musical extravaganza, but unfortunately we have prepared no such extravaganza. Our ebullient discussion will have to bring the effervescence, because welcome listeners once again to The Goods, a film podcast. This is Brian, and Dan's here too. Brian, I'm not sure our listeners will know whether or not we're wearing our domi duds, unfortunately. Well, I, for one... I'm sporting a Happy Fingers beanie. Do you actually have one of those? I was looking at that. I was like, that would be a, just a great thing to have in your closet. I don't. So if you come across one, th- that would be a good gift. Okay. I'll keep that Just in mind. saying. Because the film that we will be discussing today is 1953's The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. And while it was directed by Roy Rowland, the most clear creative fingerprints on this film all come from Dr. Seuss. This was the only Hollywood film that he wrote, the only live-action film that he wrote, and it didn't do too well at the box office or wasn't especially well critically reviewed at the time, so he, he never did it again after this. What was your exposure to this film prior to recording today, Dan? So I had read your post on this because you've written about this on our blog earned this a while ago at this point and it was my first exposure to it i didn't realize there was a dr seuss written movie so i always thought that that was intriguing but never got around to watching it until now and it is very much a dr seuss product for sure yes one gets the sense that he also had pretty free run with the production design He wrote the lyrics to the songs like in the TV Grinch. Just every frame is overflowing with Seussiness. This came out, it was, did you say it was 1953 that this came out? That's right. How familiar are you with Dr. Seuss's bibliography? I'm pretty familiar, which made it interesting to think about putting together our episode for today because... This was actually four years before 1957, which is when Seuss published both The Cat in the Hat and The Grinch. Right. Some context that I've talked about on the pod before, but we'll talk about again here. I have a three-year-old daughter and a -a one-and-a-half-year-old daughter, and I am really into finding interesting books for them to read and trying to like read a wide variety of picture books through the decades. Last year, I read all of the Caldecott winners and honor books, which is about 350 of them, and it was a heck of an effort to track all of them down. Dr. Seuss has, I think, two or three, I think three of them from early in his career. So he started publishing books in the 30s, and we've probably read about half of them at our house because he's, he's actually done quite a few, many that you wouldn't know the name of unless you really grew up with a lot of them. And this came out in 53, which was still fairly early in his career. As you mentioned, many of his more famous books, when he got into the beginner book phase and started doing like really early reader books. So the the Cat in the Hat book, for example, was really influential because it was designed to be for early readers, not like experienced readers or narrated by parents or whatever. And normally the early reader books were all like Dick and Jane type books. So that was kind of a, a... revolutionary book but before that most of his books were actually quite a bit longer with more story to them and not 
just the rhymes and stuff. Although they did still have the rhymes and they still had the Susian energy. So his his Caldecott honor books, I don't think he ever actually had a winner. He just had honors, which are like there's usually two or three runners up, were McElligot's Pool, Bartholomew and the Ublek, and If I Ran the Zoo. It's possible I missed one of that that bunch. This one really reminded me of Bartholomew and the Ublek, which kind of also has a sort of terrifying castle place run by like a some sort of dictator. But just, yeah, some context. It's fairly, fairly early in his career, and I wish that he could have had a little more free reign with these movies afterwards, because this was this is really something, this film. I'm glad you brought up Bartholomew Cubbins, because I was going to say the same thing. Two of Seuss's early books follow this character, a boy named Bartholomew Cubbins. There's The 500 Hats of Bartholomew Cubbins, and then Bartholomew and the Ublek. And these are not rhyming books. They're these prose stories and they're longer like dan said and you're exactly right that i think that's the clearest source of this movie's inspiration because the protagonist of the movie is bartholomew collins played by tommy riddig of lassie fame i also wanted to point out that seuss wrote a short film called gerald mcboing boing that ended up winning the Academy Award for Animated Short Subject in 1950. And from what I read, it seems like this was kind of his entry into making Hollywood films. Gerald McBoing Boing was animated by a studio named UPA, who would go on to make Mr. Magoo. And fun fact, Gerald McBoing Boing appears as Tiny Tim in Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. It's sort of like a little in-house shout-out. Wow. I did not know that Seuss had written Gerald McBoing Boing. That's pretty incredible. Because that was a well-known animated short for sure. Yeah, I read that it came up on like top 50 cartoons and actually ranked pretty highly within that among industry figures. The gimmick, which we haven't said yet, is that Gerald McBoing Boing is a boy who speaks in sound effects. So he's making noises instead of words. I have a, a bit of Dr. Seuss, one more Dr. Seuss trivia before we pivot to the, the film at hand. Oh, please. There's going to be a lot of asides in this discussion. <laughs> so what is the first book that Dr. Seuss published? So until just a moment ago, I would have said, and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street, which is one that I was read many times as a boy and is now on the canceled dr seuss list you you can't buy it from reputable publishers anymore but what is the real answer dan (laughs) it is it came out six years before and i think i saw it on mulberry street and it is called the pocket book of boners (laughs) have you ever heard of this not until literally just like five minutes ago when i brought up the bibliography and i was hoping it would come up and now the pocketbook of owners has come up. I just It's very funny that probably the most famous children's author of the 20th and 21st century, his, his first book was called The Pocketbook of Boners. It's, it's something else. but For boner enthusiasts out there, there's also a Batman comic from, I would guess, sometime in the Silver Age. I'm not exactly sure when this slang term was around, but it's called The Joker's Boner or something. And it 
features heavy use of that term to mean like a prank or a gaffe. Yeah, according to Wikipedia, it's like prominently featured in the Pocket Book of Boners Wikipedia article. At the time of its writing, the term boner was not commonly used to mean an erection with sexual connotation, but rather a term meaning silly mistake. There we go. So how I first found this movie, The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, was wandering the aisles of Blockbuster Video when I was like, I don't know, eight or nine maybe. And, well, that title jumps out at you. At least it did at me. The cover was crazy and colorful. I don't remember exactly what it had on it. But it said that it was a movie by Dr. Seuss. And I was very curious. And I'm, I'm glad that I rented it because it has been influential on me. As Dan mentioned, I included it on my top 100 films list back in 2013. I, I put it in the 70s. And I'm wondering if that's still the rank that it would hold. Uh, but it would still be on there for sure. Dan, you were saying that as you watched it, you mentioned that there were things about this movie that you only appreciate having been exposed to me and more specifically my TV show, Count Gauntly's Horrors from the Public Domain. Yeah, the, there was a few moments where I don't think I would have either fully understood or fully appreciated the moment, if not for Count Gauntley's. One is, there are a few moments throughout this film where I noticed the very distinct sound of the theremin, which is an instrument I did not know about until it was featured on your public access TV show. Can you tell us what the theremin is? Because I'm not even sure I could describe it. Yes, so the theremin was the original electronic instrument. It was developed by a Soviet scientist in I think the 1920s and it's a box with two antennas sticking out of it just a wooden box the antenna sticking out of the side controls the volume and the antenna sticking out of the top is the pitch what people like to say is it's the only instrument you play by never touching it I'm only just starting out in electrical work but uh, I believe the way it works is that your hands work as the plates of a capacitor, and the capacitance changes as the distance between your hands and the antennas changes. So you're kind of just waving your hands around by this thing, but the proximity of your hands controls the note that it plays. This might be hard to picture in your mind, but you've definitely heard one of these if you watch 50s sci-fi at all. Because any any type of 1950s space movie is going to feature this thing. And it sounds like... Something along those lines. Yeah, it's a very alien, inhuman sound that is very vaguely musical. In the sense that there's a distinct tone that you can tell is, is moving. But it just doesn't sound quite right and doesn't sound quite like anything else. That's why it is used when you see monsters and aliens, and in this case, the surreal inner visions of Dr. Seuss's brain. It works kind of like a slide whistle. One other tidbit I wanted to shout out before dissecting the plot. This was a big year for star Hans Conried, who plays the titular Dr. T, because also in 1953, Disney's Peter Pan came out, and... That features probably Conrad's most famous role where he played Captain Hook. 
and also doubled as the darling children's father. And you you taught me earlier in the show that traditionally the same person plays the father and Hook. Right, that's an old theatrical convention. Uh, there's a good quote that I found from Hans Conried. He says, I never had any such part before. This is talking about Dr. T. I never have since, and I probably never will again. We rehearsed for eight weeks before I was engaged to shoot for eight weeks, an extravagance that I as a bit player had never known. If it had been a success with my prominent part in the title role, it would have changed my life. I feel like you could maybe say that about just any movie role. If that movie had been a runaway smash, it would have been good for me. I think the point stands that there was potential in this film that might not have been realized by the mass audiences. Yeah, I suppose that's along the lines of the sports commentator saying if he wants to win the game, he's going to have to score more points. Right. And for what it's worth, this film did get an Oscar nomination for score. So it is a musical. We've uh, we've both chosen some musicals for discussion on the show at this point. I think by and large I've picked more. I'm going to just keep racking up my total in the weeks ahead. But, of course, Dan brought our super coverage of the entire High School Musical franchise. So we're no strangers to musical theater th- at this point. Right, although a couple things. I'll point out that our High School Musical coverage is now out of date because the second season of High School Musical, the musical, the series, is now airing on Disney+. Plus one episode every Friday. Oh man, we might need to revisit, do an update. Yeah. Also, I feel like I'm trying to think of the musicals you've selected, but and the musicals I've selected. I I don't know if I picked any beyond the high school musical ones, and those are all obviously in the 21st century, and you picked the Christmas Carol movies. And what else have what other musicals have you picked? Hmm. I guess I might have to go back to the list. Maybe it's just mostly in my head at this point, but uh, this is one, is my point. And another one is coming. And and where I was going with that is I've appreciated you letting me go into some more obscure and older musicals that I, I really did not have much experience with. Well, thank you for keeping me current in as much as a 2006 TV movie is current, but... <laughs> Obviously, our uh, crux of discussion was the brand spanking new HSMTMTS. A film critic I like, who I've mentioned before, Tim Brayton. I don't know if this was his own thought or if he was paraphrasing someone else, but he wrote something in one of his reviews that has stuck with me since I read it, which is that basically if you ask anyone to define what modern film is, it will usually end up being films released in their lifetime. So... I would say in that case, High School Musical is indeed a modern musical, and maybe of the Christmas Carol ones we looked at, the Muppet one was also. Okay, that's not too bad a metric. Certainly, neither of us were around back in 1953, or 1970 as the case may be. We all come at criticism and discussion with our own viewpoints, so we are colored by our times. At the start of this movie we get kind of a Wizard of Oz opening. You're going to see that this is going to have sort of a Alice in Wonderland style structure where 
a lot of the weirdness is excused by it being a dream in the end. Although this one's interesting. I've never seen one quite like this, where we get a flash of it in the beginning, and then he wakes up, and we're basically told point blank that this is a dream. And then we get a slice of reality, and then we go back to the dream world. So it's kind of already pulled the rug out from under us that this is, at least to some extent, inside the protagonist's head. Oh, right, because there's that very weird disconnected segment at the beginning where there's people running around with nets, rainbow nets. And there's like these weird abstract art objects that look like flying saucers. And there's a human lighthouse spotlight who sees him just before he wakes up from his dream. I'm curious how this is going to come across in the end because this is the kind of movie where Dan can just casually drop the phrase there is a human lighthouse (laughs) and you know you can't really recount the events of this film clearly to someone who has not seen it perhaps but we're gonna try you know as we go through it just something that as you were saying that that occurred to me i'm trying to imagine or trying to wonder why this didn't become a, a cult hit among the druggies in the 60s and 70s the same way that alice in wonderland did for real because this feels like a considerably later film in terms of its psychedelic weirdness like if i were to just look at a frame from this movie or a scene and judge by the visuals alone i would guess it was from the 60s or maybe even the 70s completely agree but i think we're gonna find that the moral of the story is still firmly rooted in the 1950s Uh, but our protagonist is bart collins and he is a boy who is taking piano lessons once we're into our reality scene proper he's sitting at the piano being taught by dr terwilliker who is hans conried Hans Conried, we get the sense, is this guy who's like a door-to-door salesman of piano lessons. And he's got this method that he has created, the Happy Fingers method. And so he's got his own little booklet and his own little teaching pieces that he writes. Bard is none too fond of these piano lessons, as it turns out. Yeah, it's because Dr. Terwilliker is like a taskmaster. He says, if you want to be a concert pianist, you have to, I forget exactly what it is, but I was like, why would it, uh, I don't know how old this kid is supposed to be. Why would he want to be a concert pianist? I don't know. I, I couldn't see why his mom was buying in on this message, but I guess that's part of like the moral conundrum of the film. So one reason I thought this film might provide some interesting discussion, Dan, is we are both of us products of the music education system. Mm-hmm. So I know that we were both in the school band, in the marching band. Dan played the trumpet. I played the clarinet and the bass clarinet. Uh, But what else, Dan? I know I've got some theremin under my belt. (laughs) But uh, did you ever take piano lessons, for instance? I did for maybe one to two years. And unlike Bart, my parents did not force me to practice. And so I just didn't practice. And at some point, my parents were like, well, we're paying for these lessons and you're not practicing, so you're not getting better. 
So we're going to stop paying for the lessons now. And then I stopped going to them. And so that was a fairly short-lived piano career. Okay. I had pretty much the exact same experience. Okay. <laughs> that I took a couple years of lessons and was maybe not as invested in it at the time as I could have been. And then it, it petered out. Uh, but I have subsequently in the last few years, been trying to like reteach myself piano. I'm probably doing a lot of stuff wrong. I do know how to read the music and, and plunk out some tunes, but I could use a lot more work on like getting my hands to do two different things at once. I find that to be pretty tricky. Yeah, I agree. I got a, a keyboard for me and my girls to use, and I got this kind of teach your toddlers the basics of piano book where you put colors on the different keys of the keyboard and you can say, all right, we're going to play Mary had a little lamb. Now hit these colors in this order. And there's like a diagram of like the colors in order. It's like very proto sheet music. She didn't get quite far enough to be able to read it on her own. Didn't have the patience for that. I think she's still a little bit young. She's only three, almost four, but um, I too, I guess dream, you know, I, I <laughs> a minute ago said, I, I don't know what the motivation is. And here I am trying to get my three-year-old to play some piano. So maybe I shouldn't talk there. Yes. So Bart's mother is very much into the appeal of the Dr. Terwilliker system. And we get the sense that it's her pushing for him to take these lessons because Bart seems to want no part of it. And the house is being serviced at this point by a plumber who also seems to not be on board with Dr. Terwilliger's program. Uh, this is the plumber August Zabladowski. He's kind of been telling Bart that Dr. T is a shyster. Uh, he specifically calls him a racketeer. There's some good 50s verbiage in this film. I agree, yeah. Even the name, what is it, Z Zabladowski? It's a heck of a name. With these competing viewpoints in his head Bart drifts off to sleep at the piano after his lesson is over and the bulk of the story where we're going to see all the weird stuff is going to be a dream and the people that we've just seen are going to reappear in hyperbolic forms a la the Wizard of Oz yeah I liked the moment when he drifted off to sleep he's like kind of haunting he was muttering practice makes perfect practice makes perfect smashing the the keyboard and then all of a sudden we find him in dream world in this set that i assume you're about to describe here across the board the sets in this film are insane the production design i i want to walk around in one of these spaces because they at least appear to be huge. I think there was a lot of creative use of like matte paintings and stuff to make it look bigger than it really was. But even so, this first set that we're dropped into when the dream starts is a piano for 500 players. And so it's in this huge hall and just curves all around the room, back and forth, zigzags. It's got multiple stories and rows of stools all down it. So that we can have 500 players on this double-decker piano 
if you can do the math, everybody's got 10 fingers, so that's going to give us our 5,000 fingers of the title. I know we're going to talk plenty more about these sets as we go here. To add on to your description of how big they are and the use of the matte paintings, one thing I noticed too is that I think intentionally the backgrounds are very bare and like a single color and it adds to this dreamlike illusion. Like there's this portion of reality that's just missing in the background. And in the foreground, you have like these really bizarre, almost German expressionistic sets of like skewed angles and weird things at proportions that don't quite make sense. It's very disorienting and very cool to look at. Yeah, there's lots of German expressionistic elements. There's a scene early on where Bart is running from the guards. And just, it looks a lot like Dr. Caligari. That's what I can say. This is like a Technicolor Caligari. Because here in this first scene, Dr. Terwilliker is lording over Bart, sitting alone at the piano. And we get some exposition that apparently Bart is the first student or inmate, you might say, at an institute that Dr. Terwilliker is opening. Uh, he's recruited these 500 students, all boys, he says, who are going to be coming and playing his masterpiece. And all playing with their 5,000 fingers here on his enormous piano. And so, uh, they're not there yet. So, Bart is the first one to arrive. And this is due in large part to his mother being in the number two spot. Uh, apparently she's so won over by Dr. T's grand vision that she's signed up Bart as patient zero here they kind of do a thing where she's kind of a frumpy housewife in the reality and in the dreamland she's just a hair sexed up and it's actually kind of interesting the dress she's wearing early on is this blue dress where it's almost two-faced half of it is kind of a little more formal and the other half is kind of glimmery fancy like go out on the town type party dress. And it kind of suggests this dual role and this kind of torn conflict in the mom about, you know, what she should be valuing with her kids and how the two different men that she meets represent that in different ways. Yes, because as I mentioned at the end of last week's episode, I saw parallels between the film we last discussed, The Iron Giant, and the movie that we're talking about today. Did you see any of that, Dan? I'm not sure I would have seen it on my own, but as soon as soon since you pointed it out for me prior to me watching it, it's very much there for sure. Even more explicitly here, I would say, where you have these competing male figures with an apparently single mom, and it's suggested... That in some ways they are competing for her romantically and in kind of their life values in, in terms of what kind of mom and what kind of woman she is. And so we get some contrasting views on, on life 
from two potential male role models for the protagonist boy. Exactly. Bart runs away from the piano and Dr. T sends his goons after him in this German expressionist sequence I was talking about where he's running through the Institute and there's just so many moments that stick out to me. He like runs by this picture frame that has these robotic hands endlessly pounding on piano keys and echoing practice makes perfect practice makes perfect practice makes perfect and then he runs by this other window where there's this giant like wizard of oz head and it says the years you spend at the Tewilika institute will be the happiest of your life but if you decide to escape the barriers around the Tewilika institute are electrified and oh man Hans Conried has maybe my favorite villain voice of all time it's it's up there I mean James Earl Jones has got his niche carved out but I love what Hans Conried is doing here for sure yeah I like that yeah he's he's hamming it up but it's also a controlled form of hamminess that's just slimy and and delightful. Yes, in the words of Brad Neely, he's just acting his little ass off. <laughs> Bart is able to climb up this giant ladder to get away from the guards, and he jumps off the ladder and drifts down kind of Alice in Wonderland style and and is able to buy himself some time. He... I don't know exactly where he is, I guess, still in the Institute. I don't think he ever leaves the Institute, but he manages to get to a place where they don't know where he is. And he runs into Zabladowski, the plumber. He's here, too. As Dan said, this is going to be our competing masculine role to Dr. T, because Zabladowski is blue-collar. He's a laborer. He's not had this fancy musical education. But as we find out, he's still important because if the sinks are not installed, the Institute's not going to be able to open. I was consistently amused by Peter Lind Hayes just saying with a straight face all of this work that needs to be done on the sinks. Like, you need proper sinkage for 500 kids. Like, what does that even mean? And why is it the sinks that they're thinking about? I don't know, but it, it was cracking me up. And he and he's just saying it like he's like a, a dude on a work order. It, it was making me laugh. Yeah, I love how he delivers all of this bizarre dialogue with a straight face. You're exactly right. He has this tally list of the sinks that he's installed. And the tally marks are just all over the place. It's like a madman in a prison cell marking off the days. And one of the goons who chases after Bart is one of the more iconic minions I've seen in recent memory. This is, I don't think you've mentioned this yet, the, this is Siamese twins, except the place that they're connected at is the beard. And the way they get from place to place is by doing this sort of dancey roller skating to get around. And it is just... Full of imagination, let's say. Yeah, it's pretty strange. I am glad you brought them up. 
I think those guys were on the cover of the VHS tape that I found back when I was nine. And so, <laughs> definitely a key visual element. And we get some, some comic mileage out of, like, hanging from the beards and stuff. It's, it's good. Yeah, I want to know what kind of organs are in the beard, because as we're going to find out as the movie goes along, it's apparently something vital. <laughs> but Bart hits on the idea that he's going to convince Mr. Zabladowski not to finish his work so that the Institute can't open and Terwilliker's master plan can't be executed. So he asks Mr. Zabladowski to look deeper into Dr. T's intentions because they're insidious. And it takes a little while to win him over. There's a scene where Dr. T is putting on a genial facade and he offers a cigar and uh, a fine set table to Mr. Zabladowski. And I like this moment a lot because he's just pulling all of this stuff out of the walls and the floor. And it's like perfectly arranged settings of food and still smoking cigars coming out on these racks that are sliding up out of nowhere. Yeah, that, that was pretty amazing. This was kind of right around the time that, I think this was right after one of the more bizarre sequences in the film and one that I, I just, I literally couldn't believe what I was watching. Like, how did this thing actually get made? And it's where Zabladowski and Dr. T are trying to hypnotize each other. And they like, I think that's what they're doing, but they're basically just doing this elaborate choreographed dance with each other, like putting their hands on each other's faces and stuff. And I was getting some serious swinger bisexual vibes from, from a couple of these scenes. They do have a hypnosis fight here. Well, this lively, like, I don't know if it's a tango or a rumba is playing. It's like, and I think we get some more of the theremin here too, as they're practicing their whammies, as they call them. And uh, they fight to a draw here in this weird mentalism fight. And then they congratulate each other on <laughs> their whammies. And like, where did you study your hypnosis powers? So definitely an interesting moment. But another reason that Zabladowski is initially unwilling to act out against Dr. T is because Dr. T is the guy paying his salary. And... <laughs> I like the discussion here, because he says, Now the currency here is a little strange. First of all comes the drachmids. At the normal rate of exchange, there are 59 drachmids to one silver's lobeck. Three silver's lobecks make one golden crotchmook. A pastula normally is 44,000 crotchmooks. But these, they tell me, are not normal times. And just another example of Zabladowski delivering this bizarre dialogue deadpan. I know, he's so good at it. I, I liked that scene, that, that whole discussion. There were certainly some weird, like, anti-capitalist themes and moments where, like... I mean, I guess it's not all that surprising if you're going to have 
a villain who's kind of a dictator, but like who's kind of throwing money around, but in a sort of way that's like cheating everyone else and trying to use that to manipulate and control people. I guess it's also very much like a kid's way of looking at the adult world, like this whole money thing that everyone's so worried about, but it's sort of like this uh, abstract nothingness to them. I don't know. Right. There's some great moments of kid logic in this movie and also dream logic. Like uh, there's a lot of movies that have dream scenes in them, but uh, for some reason, Bart climbing the big ladder that just gets like longer and longer and tell it's cartoonishly dwarfing everything else in the world really felt like something that might happen in a dream to me. Yeah, that that was I got to say that ladder was one of the more individually haunting and striking visuals of the film cuz you're right it's it's all up against this is like when he's climbing to the top trying to escape and you see like all these crooked spires and stuff and then he jumps off and his shirt inflates like a parachute and he falls down i agree very dreamlike i've thought recently about lines from films that just pop into my mind in day-to-day circumstances and but these they tell me are not normal times is (laughs) certainly one that comes to mind for me that's good so at first zabladowski is he's won over by this display of compassion from dr t even though we get the sense that it is not sincere uh, after zabladowski leaves the office of dr t bart hangs around uh kind of hiding behind a curtain shakespearean style and we see dr t place a call to his physics laboratory <laughs> and he says when the plumber Zabladowski has installed the last sink, I want him disintegrated. I want you to disintegrate him slowly. I want him to suffer. Atom by atom. Disintegration is one of those things, kind of like quicksand, that I thought a whole lot about when I was a kid. I'm not encountering too much disintegration in my day-to-day life. Yeah, man, I typed disintegrated into the Google Doc, and it, like, didn't recognize that tense. It's like, did you mean disintegrate? No, I want him disintegrated. (laughs) Another thing I loved about this kind of uh, bounty, or whatever you want to call it, uh, assassination call on, on Zabladowski, is we get this very elaborate and cartoonish contract signifying the request for disintegration oh and when dr t sends zabladowski off after their little party thing meeting of the minds he says well that was a pleasant little interlude now return (laughs) to your labors (laughs) and that's another one that comes to my mind if i am taking a work break or something that was a pleasant little interlude now return to your labors um but (laughs) Bart is back to wandering the Institute. And at one point, he comes across this dungeon, which he is told is for anybody who plays anything other than the piano, any other instrument. And this sets the stage for 
what might be the best scene in the film. I think it's got to be in contention. Because we get this bizarre extended musical number that I guess you could call a ballet. Uh, it's a it's a long instrumental set piece where dozens of prisoners jump out from all over this like mini tiered set. There's like a, a bunch of steps and layers to this thing, this huge room again. And all these prisoners are running around painted green. I don't know why they're painted green. And they all have Seuss instruments. Agreed. Very distinctly Seussian. Like there's horns on the noses and goofy cartoonish accordions. And like they're banging weird shaped xylophones that resemble household objects and stuff. I'm with you. This scene is a masterpiece moment in in this film. I think it's probably the best scene, although... There's a couple others up there. The the hypnosis tango was one for me. And there's there's a couple others coming up too. Like picture the moment in a better known Seuss film, the uh, animated Grinch who stole Christmas. Uh, there's a part where the Grinch is talking about what he hates about how the Who's celebrate Christmas. He says that they uh, bang their gardinkas and slang their slew slunkas. And we get little glimpses of the Who's playing bizarre instruments. Well, think about that brought to life in a six-minute set piece. I love this this centerpiece that comes out at one point. is like this giant 25-foot harp. And I don't know. The instruments get more and more ridiculous as the sequence goes along. Right, there's like a whole dance team with bicycle horns strapped to themselves and they're doing choreography where they're hitting the horns. There's, uh, like you said, a, a sliding scale of instrument weirdness because there's enormous trumpets and enormous accordions, but then it gets weirder than that. There's like a guy who plays a gun. There's boxers doing percussion. There's a guy who's like on a swing and he bats a tambourine as he sw swings back and forth. There are these guys playing mannequins as cellos. And there are guys who are like strapped into these violin things. Like, uh, uh, like if you look up the medieval torture device, a scolds violin, where they would like strap your hands into it. It looks like that. Uh, there's a guy who has antlers strapped to his head and there's bells hanging from the antlers and the way that he gets played is another guy strangles him and like shakes him and it rings the bells there's so much going on one of the, the moments that kind of caps it is one guy is like swinging around imagine like a ball and chain because they're in a dungeon remember he swings it and throws it like across the room and it hits this gong that has must have a diameter of like 35 feet or something like that. It's this huge gong. And that's that's right near the end of it. And yeah, I just love the way that this continued to escalate. And then when it was over, I loved we have like a 20 second of people just kind of milling around as if nothing had happened. Yeah, they just walk away. Everybody <laughs> just walks away. It's a mic drop. Right. That made me laugh pretty hard. And I just have to wonder, like... 
about this production process. Who was it who said, okay, here we need a 25-foot harp and a 30-foot gong and just bring it all together for me. And the studio said, yeah, okay. <laughs> you're, you're the boss, Dr. Seuss. We trust you. <laughs> this is going to bring in the box office bucks, right? Uh, I'm I'm a sucker for practical effects and and props, big props, and those are here in this movie in spades. Yeah, very very pleasing to look at, and different from what you see in blockbusters these days. So I, I definitely got a kick out of whenever they would have those those things. You know that they had actually constructed for this movie that were just of absurd proportions or larger than life in some way. For sure. Eventually, though, I think Bart gets a hold of this execution order. And so Zabladowski does come around. He comes to terms with the fact that Dr. T bears him only ill will. And so the two of them work together to free Bart's mother, who Dr. T has started to find is having uh, independent leanings. She's coming out of his trance, and so he's got her trapped in a lock-me-tight, which I think is a great name for a cage. I mean, it's just a cage, but he keeps calling it her lock-me-tight. That's pretty good. And right around this time, it's another great gag of Zab the Zabaldowski character saying something ridiculous just straight, is Bart basically convinces him that Hey, you know what? Maybe you're my dad. And he's like, Pop, you call me Pop? And he basically buys into it and they go and rescue. He says, it's it's I, your, your plumber and your husband, there to break her out of the cage. And he doesn't even know her name and he plays that straight. It's I thought it, it verged a little more into the funny towards the second half of the movie, but it actually did make me laugh pretty hard. I, I thought it was quite humorous. Yeah. I, I like everything that's going on here. Another good example of the child logic. Right. And once they break her out and they're running along, they find this machine that puts out pickle juice. Now, this had been mentioned as one of the beverages when, when Dr. T is kind of doing his little diplomacy session with Zabladowski earlier. He offers him the pickle juice. The pride of our vineyards, as he says. Uh, but here we have where the pickle juice comes from. And it's this crazy machine that has all these lights and bells and whistles and all these moving parts just to fill a pitcher with this green Nilbog-style juice. And I, I don't want to oversell this pickle juice machine, but... Like, it's in the movie for, like, ten seconds. And it's another thing that they had to build. And somebody said, make me this crazy <laughs> machine. Because I want to see it, and viewers will want to see this thing. But their escape attempt is not successful. They make it a ways, but they are cornered by Dr. T and his army of guards. At which point the guards sing this extended number that is an alma mater song about the Terwilliker Institute and how great it is that they've just won. I definitely thought of you. I wish more villains would do this. 
<laughs> just uh, you know, take joy in their victories. I I was disappointed at that little moment in like uh, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows where for you know a little bit it looks like Voldemort has actually won and Harry is dead. Uh, we do get a nice moment of laughter from Voldemort where he just he just seems for a moment to legitimately be happy. Uh, but he didn't sing a song like this. These, this army, something very odd about them. They're all like kind of schlubby adult men, but it's kind of munchkin vibes from the Wizard of Oz. They like do a little barbershop quartet number at some point. And I mean, at some point, like maybe given all the things we're describing, you just got to go watch this movie because words don't do it justice, but their outfits are so comical they're like these bright yellow skull caps and these blue bodysuits with like these dangling yellow kind of phallic extensions on the side of the pants. And and there's something else, man. Yeah, so they're they're blue and yellow, except for the commanding officers who are yellow and blue. And yeah, they have these big sashes and like holsters, these these pant things that Dan is talking about. And, yeah, they're just reveling in their victory. So Dr. T carts Bart and Zabladowski off to a dungeon where they're going to be confined. And we see a prisoner that Dr. T points out who's this guy strapped inside a drum and just being tortured endlessly by people pounding on the drum. And it's a, it's a moment of scariness in this film. There There is some darkness here. And uh, actually a moment that I just skipped over. Uh, and I don't know how I could leave this out. Uh, on their way to the dungeon, they get into this elevator. That It's like a service elevator that has to be operated by an attendant. And <laughs> you want to describe this scene, Dan? Sure. So... First of all, we see it's an elevator that goes deeper into the depths of the the dungeons. And you, and you go inside, and the elevator attendant is very weird and deathly looking. He's got this kind of black hat thing, except it goes over his whole face like a mask. Yeah, it's and like his, an executioner hood where you right. can only see his eyes, which are piercing and super white. I know, just... Bugging out, yeah. And he and Dr. T have this song about what each of the depths of the dungeons are, like what sort of tortures you undergo as the whole frame is kind of shaking as the elevator goes down. It's it's quite dark. In your article, I think you compared it to the Willy Wonka boat ride scene. And I think that is a good comparison in terms of how, like... This could traumatize a childhood mind with how dark it is here. And how it comes out of nowhere and is never discussed again after it happens. <laughs> but yeah, this attendant, this like executioner guy who has got like leather gimp pants and who I honestly can't tell. I think he might be like the only black person in the movie. Uh, I don't know. He may just have like stuff on him. But he's got a darker complexion than most of the other people, and his his face is covered. So I, I don't really know if that's not the case. I mean, he might just be a, a white dude who is lit darkly. But 
No, he he's definitely got like bronzer on, and I do think you're right that it trades subconsciously perhaps on some like slavery bound imagery. But he's a striking figure regardless, and yeah, he's listing tortures like it's floors of a department store. You know, fourth floor, home goods. But on one of the floors, he talks about how they've got thumbs, screws, and nooses of the very finest rope. <laughs> because he's got this baritone voice, too. And very spooky. Apparently, they cut out a whole verse where he's talking about gas chambers and roasting pots. Oh, God. <laughs> Yeah, uh, society was not ready for that yet. <laughs> and apparently they actually re-released this movie in 1958. They called it Crazy Music. And pretty much the only difference was they cut out the <laughs> dungeon scene. The the dungeon music number that we get here, sung by the elevator operator. One thing I saw on the Wikipedia article for the movie is that they had to cut about half of the musical numbers that... Seuss had written for the film in part because it was too many and in part because some of them were really too dark for a kids movie and I, I just wish that we could have gotten the sheet music for those or something because I really want to know what was darker than this descending levels of a torture chamber song that was deemed inadequate for the film or, or a bridge too far exactly so I've heard that there is a three disc soundtrack album uh, that includes a lot of this cut music but there are so many scenes that are on the cutting room floor that it, apparently a lot of this film is considered lost and uh, that is a tragedy i really want to see these elements be found someday uh, but i will settle for buying the three disc soundtrack which i'm putting in my amazon card as we speak i gotta have this <laughs> Um, but as they're sitting down in their cell, Bart and Zabladowski are discussing what they're going to do, what can they do, and they come up with this plan that they're going to make a device that will suck the sound out of the air during Dr. T's concert, because the other students slash inmates are arriving by busloads, and the big moment is about to begin. So Bart pulls out all the things he has in his pockets. He's got all these like fifties mischievous boy items in his pockets, like Dennis the menace, you know, like a slingshot and marbles and stuff. And he says, Oh, this has got to be enough to make a scientific device. <laughs> Again, very kid logic. Like, I've thought of my three-year-old daughter who loves to make robots, but making robots is just like piling different toys and pieces of toys into some artful shape that makes her think of something. And it's the exact same logic. Like these exact things around me will be exactly what you need for this grand creation. And uh, kind of what they use as a base is Zabladowski has this like deodorant stuff that I don't even know if they sell this specific product. Cause I haven't seen anything like this. It's like a bottle that you lift up the lid and 
it makes things around you smell better. It's like a Glade plug-in, but 50 years earlier. So they logic that if this thing can suck smells out of the air, we can modify it to suck sounds out of the air. <laughs> so these troops of boys are arriving at this point and being assigned their places at the piano. And just yet again, I'm struck by the sheer scale of everything. Just, you know, legions are here ascending this multiple story piano. Another line that I like around this point is Mrs. Collins, Bart's mom, is talking to another mother on the phone about what her son will be allowed to bring to the Institute. And she says, no, madam, most definitely not. Your son will not be allowed to bring his baseball. Dr. Terwilliker does not believe in baseballs, golf balls, or tennis balls, ping pong balls, snowballs, croquet balls, or hockey pucks. Dr. Terwilliker believes only in the piano. I enjoyed that, yeah. Everybody in this movie, even the kid, did a good job delivering this dialogue. Because <laughs> it is pretty complex. You know, Dr. Seuss is known for uh, creative diction. Requires some dexterity of the tongue and lips. Indeed. Uh, meanwhile, Dr. T is also getting ready to take his place. And he opens this big walk-in closet with, you know, like Batman-style clothes arranged on mannequins and stuff. This whole troop of attendants comes out to dress him. And he sings a song called Dress Me in My Domey Doe Duds where he is just rattling off all the clothing that he wants to wear. It made me think of Mr. Burns's See My Vest song, but, like, in the weird, dark crevices of an insane person's mind. He says, Dress me in my silver garters, dress me in my diamond studs, for I'm going do-me-doing in my do-me-do-duds. And, man, it's like... It's almost like rapping, how he's spitting out all these things he's going to wear. And, man, one that he calls out is an organdy snood. And I played this movie in high school for um, fellow film podcaster Teddy, host of the Buzzed on Movies podcast. And he was tickled pink by the mention of the organdy snood. <laughs> There's also a, a chiffon Mother Hubbard lined with Hudson Bay Rat. Uh, he's got lavender spats. He's got monkey feather cuffs. Just, if you didn't know up till now that you were watching a Dr. Seuss project, you know it now. And, and he ends up wearing this hat. It's like a marching band hat, but with just feathers that go like seven feet above his head. In a... Bright rainbow, neon colors. Yeah, everything is this bright electric blue. That's like his signature color. I, I have some envy here. I <laughs> I would like some of this wardrobe. You got some good stuff for Gauntly. I'm not sure I can think of any one of your, your outfits that quite match Dr. T's climactic wardrobe right here. Right, it's, it's a process. You got to build to get there. Um... But again, it's it's like I mentioned in the Pee-wee's Playhouse Christmas special. It's like, man, I just wish I had an entire team of artists to say, make me a 30-foot gong. 
or something. But you gotta work there. Teamwork makes the dream work. So Dr. T takes his place on the stage to start this concert. Bart has been brought up from the dungeons to take his seat at the piano. And he has this sound-catching gookum, as they've called it. <laughs> and as the music is about to begin, he pulls this gadget out of his pocket. And it sucks up and distorts all the noise. And so there's no music happening. It's not just that, though. It's the editing. It's hard to convey what it is. It's very jarring. And like as it's cutting from these people making these noises and like rapidly cutting to the device that's sucking it in and kind of like distorting the noise. It, it's like a fractured reality here for a couple of minutes. And I was kind of flabbergasted that this film went so avant-garde with the editing for even just for a couple of minutes to really capture that dream spirit of this, this uh, alternate reality that, that they're living in here, this, this dreamscape. It really brought it home as like kind of the climax of this film. And it just like makes all of the adults go insane. Yeah, everybody's freaking out. The dialogue is looping and echoing and there's like cartoon sound effects. And there's a moment where like one of the guards shoots a gun and you don't hear it. And they're just all trying to like restore normalcy as the world is falling apart, basically. So Bart unveils his device to Dr. T and says that he's in control now. Dr. T is groveling. He's lost all his power. And the kids have their day. They, like, storm the institute. The inmates control the prison now. And so they're all ripping up the Happy Fingers sheet music. And Bart takes the conductor's place. And announces that they're going to play basically the the best piece of music ever written. The one fun piece of piano music. And they all start banging out chopsticks on the piano. <laughs> so I, I guess that's the model of early piano student success is, is chopsticks. <laughs> uh, but in the background, unbeknownst at first to Bart, the... Sound-catching Gookum is starting to smoke, because as they were making it in the dungeon, Zabladowski warned that because of all these unstable elements that went into putting it together, it might be atomic. So, like the Iron Giant, this has also uh, got a sort of Cold War, post-World War II setting, and so uh, there is the threat of nuclear disaster. Again, as kind of filtered through the mind of a child. Exactly, because here atomic just means this big dangerous thing that could go boom. And that's really all there is to it. I, I liked how the, it's basically the music of the chaos of the kids playing the music leads to this explosion, this nuclear explosion, basically. Yeah, we, we have a lot of building chaos here. <laughs> And I like the way that Dr. T accepts that this is atomic. Like, he obviously understands it the same way that Bart does. <laughs> because this is Bart's dream. It's atomic! And uh, the smoke coming out of it, I don't know if they were trying to make a mushroom cloud shape, but it looks like a T. Like, the, 
there's like a crossbar to the smoke plume. And I don't even know how they did this. But just it all ends with this smoky tea. Uh, and, and then the dream world explodes in a cataclysm. That's interesting. I didn't notice that. But but we're back now in the real world. Bart's back at his piano. And Zabladowski drives the mother to the store to run an errand or something. Uh, so I, I, they're getting some personal time, I guess. Things seem to be going Bart's way as far as suitors for his single mom are concerned. Of course, nobody's there to keep tabs on Bart anymore, so he runs away from the piano and goes outside to play with his dog. And that's the end of the film. They do have the one little thing in there to give some ambiguity to the how much of it was the dream actually have some true connection to the reality. Earlier in the film, Bart and Zabludowski in the dream world made a blood oath with each other where they each pricked their thumbs and rubbed it together as they were making a promise. And then when he comes out of the dream world, both of them have bandages on their thumbs that they didn't have when he went into the dream. Yeah, that's interesting. So we've got, you know, the no place like home ending where we're restored to reality, but we, we still feel the lingering of the fantastical dreamscape. And that's the 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. It's pretty out there. What are your initial thoughts, Dan? Well, I was really struck overall by how how deep it went into the the dream logic and, as you've mentioned, just the the production design that contribute to that the fine line between sanity and insanity and conscious and subconscious and logic and absurdism. And it really escalates. And I was very fond of how I, I mentioned this, I think, two weeks ago when we talked about Tokyo Drifter. I really like it when movies that are a little bit weird lean into their weirdness of the ending and make it like a sort of apocalyptic type weirdness as like the payoff to everything that's been building up to it, which this definitely does with the the two punches of the noise sucker outer, which seems to like break down functioning rule of Dr. T and like the basic laws of sound and stuff and almost film continuity. And then of course the nuclear explosion, the, excuse me, I shouldn't say nuclear because that word is not used. It's always atomic. It's like this kind of vague understanding of what science actually is. This atomic explosion that, that ends the, the dreamscape. And I was thinking about this as I was watching it. The Iron Giant, of course, has a climactic scene involving a nuke. And then we watched one other movie, to my knowledge, that had a nuke in its climax. I assume you recall what that is. Was it in Godzilla? Which which was it? Oh, oh, uh, Return of the Living Dead. It was Return of the Living yeah, Dead. Yeah, I guess it's implied in Godzilla, too. I guess it's the oxygen destroyer in Godzilla. Right. It's not actually a nuke, but the threat of the nuke is certainly hanging around there. But but yeah, in in Night of the Living Dead, it kind of plays a similar role to what it does in this movie, which is that things have gotten so out of control that the movie has no choice but to literally drop a apocalyptic weapon on the world it has an insanity that it has built thus far. 
You just gotta wipe the slate clean. Yeah. You gotta nuke the site from orbit. Because <laughs> there's nowhere we can go from here. This film was not especially well-reviewed at the time when it came out. Maybe it's like Marty saying, You might not be ready for that, but your kids are gonna love it. <laughs> I know you like to pull in period reviews for some of our older films, Dan. And uh, one critic said, This film is not only abstruse in its symbols and in its vast elaboration of reveries, but is also dismally lacking in the humor or the enchantment such an item should contain. Before we start throwing around ratings, what were some things you maybe didn't like as much about this movie, Dan? The meandering plot for the first two-thirds in particular... Well, I guess once we get to the dream world, I while I enjoyed the the dreamlike wonder that we have frequently discussed already here and the sort of absurdist nature to a lot of it, it's so loosey-goosey with a relationship to reality that it kind of felt almost low stakes, like anything could happen at any point. And I never really had a real sense, like a visceral feeling of danger and it wasn't um, until the climax that that really kicked in for me. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't even really thought about the stakes. But for sure, there are times when this movie drags. The runtime is only 88 minutes, which is apparently after significant cuts, as we've mentioned. But even so, there are moments where you're almost looking at your watch. Not always helped by the songs... There are some pretty slow songs that don't seem to add too much. What were your thoughts on the music overall? I thought it was hit or miss. I, I really liked a few of the numbers. Some of them did less for me. There's one number where Zabladowski is, is comforting Bart that went on a little long and was not very exciting. I, but I did think some of the numbers were good. I really liked the the one where he's dressing up. And I also loved... This one wasn't didn't have words to it, but the dungeon one that that to me was the highlight. It was exciting. It built and built, and that that was pretty memorable. What, what about you? What's your take on the music? Yeah, I have similar feelings that the the Zabladowski solo number "Dream Stuff." I, well, I guess it's not a solo. He sings it with Bart. Uh, it goes on a little too long. There's a couple other slow ones that don't do much for me. I love the ballet number with all the crazy instruments. I think that's a masterpiece. Uh, my favorite song that has words is one called Get Together Weather. And it's a love triangle song. It's sung by Zabladowski and Dr. T and Mrs. Collins. And I wish more love triangles would work out their tension by all joining together in a dance number. Because they're like, they're all trading partners. And so, like, both Dr. T and Mr. Zabladowski are trying to dance with the mom. But then, like, there are also times where they're dancing with each other. It's just an interesting dynamic. And the choreography is cool. I briefly alluded to it earlier. Did you also get some vibes that Dr. T was maybe not the most heteronormative character? Yes, so let's talk about what I take the moral of this film to be. And it's pretty much the opposite of what we saw in The Iron Giant. 
because uh, Doctor T is is definitely coded as as not quite straight. He's uh, he's very flamboyant. He has this extensive wardrobe and male attendants to dress him. He's very histrionic, and uh, like at best, I think you could say this movie is like anti-intellectual. Basically, the educated, artsy, effeminate doctor is the menace who must be thwarted by the manly laborer. The ideal man does not have a doctorate in this world. He's a, he's a tradesman. We, we need more tradesmen, fewer of these frou-frou academics with their organdy snoods. <laughs> Very different from uh, in... Iron Giant, where it's the G-Man who's the bad guy, and the uh, Beatnik who should be celebrated. Yeah, he, he's someone who can think outside of the box and escape that oppressive small-town life. Yeah, I got something s- similar from that, too. And especially once it got to the point where he was dressing up and singing about his fashions, I was like, okay, yeah, he is definitely supposed to be kind of effeminate here. But I do think that his performance was the standout. I think the both of the, the male adult leads are quite good in, in different ways. I really loved, as I've mentioned, Zabaldowski's deadpan. But um, there's no question that it's, it's Dr. T who takes the show home. What did you think of the acting of Bart on our, uh, Jan- what's his name, Jansen Panettiere scale? Where is he from one to Jansen on annoying child actor levels? I like his performance better than Jansen, but he's still a child actor. There are moments where it's stronger than others. He does a lot of singing in this high-pitched voice that I'm not a super fan of. But, again, his delivery of some of the dialogue does make me laugh. Like, he does the same deadpan delivery of the crazy dialogue as the adults do, and I think he does a good job of that. Like, when he says that Dr. T has his mother buffaloed. That's that's a standout moment for me. He's got her <laughs> buffaloed. <laughs> he he grew on me as the movie went. He starts out kind of stiff, and I was wondering if he was meant to seem like sort of weird and alien and a little off. He turns to the camera and breaks the fourth wall in the opening scene or one of the opening scenes, which doesn't happen again throughout the film. And thinking back on that, it's kind of odd that they just threw that in there for one scene with with him staring down the camera and telling us what's going on. So where is he on your Jansen scale? If one is a no bother and a full Jansen is movie ruining, I'd put him at a uh, 25%, 40%, somewhere in that range on the the Jansen scale. He, he's a little annoying, but he's certainly far from a movie ruiner. And you're right. The, the vast majority of children actors are going to be annoying in a prominent role, so I don't begrudge him too much. And uh, while we're talking Jansen and uh, his movie, we do get some good minion names in this film because some of the guards who get mentioned by name are Strugo and Lunk. <laughs> That's good. So I think we're almost to a point where we can uh, rate this movie. Dan, and, and say whether it's good as we are wont to do. Did you have anything else you wanted to throw into the discussion before we do that? I do. I have a, a, just a small number of, of thoughts and anecdotes. Oh yeah, let's let's hear them. So one is 
I know we've talked about how Dr. Seuss clearly played a big role in this and his design is everywhere. There are a few things that I very specifically have been in his books. Just like the exact art has been in his books. One that I really noticed is the signs that tell you which way to go are like the way that Dr. Seuss draws hands in his books. And I also think some of the instruments in that little, we called it the ballet sequence, the, the thing in the dungeon with all of the crazy instruments building and building, some of those definitely have appeared in his books. So I thought it was cool to actually see, in some sense, very much Dr. Seuss come to life in a very literal way. Very cool to look at. Another thought that I had. So a show that was very formative to me in my young adulthood was The Wonder Years, which, as I'm sure you know, listeners, was a show about Fred Savage, Kevin Arnold, growing up in the late 60s and kind of reconciling his growth with the growth that was going on in America. And um, one of that show's more poignant episodes would make very interesting counter-programming to this, and that is an episode from the second season called Coda, where, for very different reasons, Kevin Arnold, the main character, basically reckons with whether or not he wants to take piano lessons and be a piano player. And whereas this comes at it from like an over-the-top, this being the the movie, comes at it from an over-the-top angle that obviously in in the, the dream extended dream sequence verges into like the absurdist and tyrannical. The episode Coda is a very bittersweet and muted take on piano lessons as kind of a symbol of childhood and of reckoning with authority and competition and stuff. So I might see if I can find that streaming and send it your way, Brian, because I I think it it does, it tackles some similar plot points while being very different. And I was definitely thinking about it as, as I was watching this. I think that's a phenomenal episode of television. So I'll have to check that out. Uh, Do we get an extended dream sequence? No extended dream sequences, alas. Although it does do a couple of interesting things with perspective. Okay. My last thought is we see it splashed very prominently in the opening credits and the closing credits. Did you see who the producer of the film was? I did not. Who's got that credit? Stanley Kramer. So you might or might not know Stanley Kramer. The reason I know him is because this book that I've mentioned multiple times on the podcast that I actually just finished reading... It's called Pictures at a Revolution, which was about the 1967-1968 Best Picture Race and the making of the five films that went into that. And one of the directors was for the comedy Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. It was actually directed by Stanley Kramer. So he's a pretty interesting dude. He was a producer. And then when directors started getting more and more credit for films he decided he wanted to be a director instead of a producer because he wanted to be like the creative vision of the film. So he went from producing to directing, but he was generally considered kind of a stodgy and old fashioned, not very with it guy. This I looked up was pretty early in his producing career because he gradually shifted away from family pictures to message pictures. So like guess who's coming to dinner 
for example, is about a biracial couple and how the white parents react to that. But it was very funny for me to see this guy who in this book is characterized as kind of like a, a stodgy moralist to some extent, making this absolutely batshit movie with just nothing here you would call stodgy, I would say, or, or uh, even keeled in any real way. So Yeah, that, I, I, am, I can hear Homer Simpson in my head saying, I love legitimate theater. <laughs> uh, but it is really funny to think about <laughs> the producer just standing there as all this stuff was going on around him and making the decision, I need to be the director next time. <laughs> <laughs> not, none of this in my movies <laughs> that was kind of my last thought and i will i'll hand things back over to you well one last thing i wanted to call out that i only noticed this time and uh i've watched this movie maybe 10 times plus and a line i noticed just this watch through is zabladowski says everyone gets into trouble everyone in the world the king of persia sometimes gets into trouble but the king of Persia, does he come crawling out of my air vent? Not at all. The king of Persia, he stays in Persia. And I point this line out because this movie is old enough that there still was a king of Persia. Well, oh, he, was the Shah, he was the Shah of Iran. Fun fact, when he got into trouble, he did not stay in Persia. <laughs> he uh, lived in exile in the U.S., that's kind of uh, funny. After the Cultural Revolution when the Ayatollah took over. Brian, one quick question. Did you ever have a like seven-story fireman slide-down pole installed in your house or anywhere where you ever were? Not yet. <laughs> it's the dream. But that is featured here. And uh, you mentioned Tokyo Drifter earlier. One parallel between those films is you get like bare rooms that are entirely illuminated in one crazy color. Yeah. That is a good connection. That definitely happens here. And as he's sliding down floor to floor to floor on this enormous like bat pole, we get rooms that are all different colors that he's sliding through. And so with discussion of crazy colors and the Ayatollah, let's put a capper on this by saying whether this movie is good. So, Dan, as our guest, how do you rate it? I had a hard time rating it. When movies are this weird and really go for it all, it's hard sometimes to know exactly how that translates to a numeric value. Like, as I'm watching these two dudes doing a hypnosis dance with each other, and I'm just going, like, what the hell am I actually walk watching here? But also kind of enjoying it. I'm, I'm struggling to think what is the correct rating for this. That said, I thought the movie really built towards the end, and I thought it came together quite well in its, its closing act, that I was surprised and engaged and just really good payoff on the building insanity that we had seen. I thought it was very funny from time to time, and really you just cannot say enough about the astonishing production values the sets the colors the costumes as mentioned the music is hit or miss and it does star a child actor which is always going to usually going to be a downgrade i think i settled on a mid-level six out of eight very good because 
again, I really loved how it came together. And I think there's just enough to soak in that this is a movie that would reward revisiting. So that's where I'm landing. What about you, Brian? Awesome. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that you got something out of it. I've definitely played this movie for people before who were not into it at all. They were confused and bored and didn't see the same things in it that I saw. But I definitely relate to your struggle of if a movie is really weird, what do you rate it? Uh, I had this discussion when we covered House early on, the psychedelic 70s Japanese movie that I guess is a horror movie. It's just so bonkers that I didn't know where to place it. Uh, I ultimately gave that one a five, and I I think my logic was that I I wasn't going to just recommend it to people on the street because of how out there it was. Now I'm having some second thoughts about that one, after having considered the film we're talking about today, uh, because... This one gets an eight from me. (laughs) Masterpiece territory. Uh, I am just blown away. And I was striving for objectivity for like the first half of the film. And I I think you're onto something when you say that the first half is the weaker half. uh, Where it's got more of the songs that drag. More of the meandering from place to place. But whenever I got to a point where... I was feeling a little bored. Something would come out of the woodwork that would just be so eye-popping that I would have the sensation of how did they do that? How did they decide that this was going to be put on screen? That I was charmed all over again. Uh, I think the biggest moment that sealed the eight for me was when the villains sing their little victory song. These guards come out as like standard bearers And they have enormous Dr. Seuss hands on these, like, 30-foot poles that they're holding up. (laughs) And, yes, I just loved the giant hands that they're carrying around. That, uh, you know, a team of people agreed that we're going to have this squadron come out in these blue and yellow jumpsuits and enormous hand standards. And that's going to be our movie. Uh, so, so that's where I'm at. Uh, highly recommend. Your mileage honestly may vary, but I get a lot out of this one, and I'm glad, Dan, for the opportunity to share it. So thank you. I can see how this would be a touchstone for you. It's, It's got the makings of something that is unlike anything else. So I don't begrudge an, an extreme rating, let's say. Because obviously <laughs> I... It was a new film for me. It wasn't. It wasn't quite as uh, core to my worldview as this one seems to be to yours. But I obviously landed on an eight out of eight for House back in the day, so I can certainly appreciate it. Your your perspective here, right? Uh, everybody's got a perspective, so watch the film and decide on yours. And we hope you are listening out there. Throw a rating on the podcast. Throw a comment. Tell us what you liked uh if you didn't like it tell us what you would like uh because it's a it's a collaborative effort if y'all get in on it with us so now after that phantasmagorical whatever that was that we just experienced dan what have you got for us next is it further insanity or are you bringing us perhaps a little more 
down to earth. I'm bringing us back to earth. I'm bringing us back to young adulthood, teenage drama. Uh, you mentioned a couple weeks ago that one thing you associate with summer is road trips. And that actually got me thinking about what are my road trip movies that maybe cross over into some facets of my film fandom that I haven't had the chance to talk about yet. And I did come up with a movie that I think fits the bill that I've only seen once, but I want to revisit and I want to hear what you have to say about it. And that is the 2015 adaptation of the John Green novel from 2008 that is Paper Towns. So again, this movie, it came out about six years ago and the book came out when we were in high school. Although I, although I read it before I watched the film, I didn't read the book until college. So I read it several years after it came out. But yeah, this is a young adult comedy, drama, romance, mystery, very unique story that I will be interested to hear what you have to say. Awesome. Yeah, I, I have not read I have not read a John Green book before or watched the films, but my brother is definitely a fan. What I know about Paper Towns is that the title and I believe a, a pivotal plot point involve the eccentricities of the publishing industry. I think we'll talk a little bit more about this when we cover it, but it's like a, a trap to avoid um, plagiarism, right? That is probably the main meaning of Paper Towns that's alluded to, but it kind of has a layered meaning, I will say. All right. Well, I look forward to diving into those layers with you. Absolutely. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope you join us again on further coverage of The Goods, a film podcast. We're watching movies, talking about them, and we hope you're having fun listening. Thanks, Brian. This was, this was a fun one. And I'll talk to you next week. Talk to you soon. Bye.